This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Nick Quinn, thanks very much for uh, coming on board and, and coming on Talk Your Book. Really appreciate your time. Now, you have a, a different investment process to a lot of the fund managers that we get on. So I thought the best place to start would be to introduce us to Spadium Capital and uh, the investment framework that you guys use. Yeah, sure. So we're a, we're a specialist Aussie small manager, uh, long only. Uh, so we hold a book of about 30 to 35 companies on average, and we don't hold very much cash. I guess the key differentiator you're pointing out there is that we often hold these companies for about 30 to 45 days on average. And that's very different to a lot of other small cap managers that will hold companies for 12, 18, 24 months. For us, I guess our investment framework is trying to decide what is the propensity for this company to have been oversold against its peers and against the wider market um, because of an external event, whether it's an earnings report, the monthly rebalancing of some of the passive funds out there, some, some event triggering this. Um, and then by, by, I guess, that, that evolution or that change in the share price, what's, what's the fair value of that? Has it been sold off too far? We'd look to buy that company and hold it for about 30 to 45 days and realize some of that appreciation. By being fast, we're not always going to be, be right, but we try to get there first. Uh, when things feel a little, bit, uh, a little bit fearful, a little bit scared, things have gone a little bit too far, we'll look to step in. So in some ways, really focusing on that investor psychology of, of, of what's happening in the markets, what are some of the clues that you're getting from the market that investors are fearful of, of the position of stocks in? And, and how do you marry that up with you know, a situation where a stock is in secular decline or, or have some serious management issues? How do you try and get on the right side of that trade? Yeah, so I guess the, the key bit for us is our, I guess our investing framework, if you like, has five main filters. The first three of those are looking at how, how is a company doing compared to the broader ASX 300 market, the macroeconomic style. The second being, how's it going against its industry peers? What's it doing against its other, its other teammates, if you like, and is it suffering compared to them? And then the third being looking at it through the small cap lens and deciding essentially what's going on in Australia versus what's going on abroad. And, and some of those bigger elements probably we'll touch on later with yields and bits and pieces like that. Um, and then I guess for us, looking at those three filters through a lens of how can that develop. If this company has been struggling against its peers, the benchmark and the small odds for, for two or three years, uh, it, it's probably got to do with the fact it's got you know, average management or, or a subpar product. Um, and it's something that we'll look to pass on. Although if this is something that's evolved quite rapidly in the last seven to 30 days, sometimes out to three months, there, there is an opportunity there that it isn't fairly priced right now, that that's an overcorrection. Too many people have not appreciated the inf negative information that's come out. Uh, it's been oversold. They've been willing to get rid of it at any price. They've, they've sold it off too quickly. Um, and the current ask price for that company is, is undervalued, which is where we'll look to get involved. It's, it's, it's got a unique blend of valuation, but also time metrics as well. I think often yeah. investors don't have a full appreciation of time when they're talking about uh, each investment proposition and their time frame for that investment uh, potentially being proven right. What do you do when you have your thesis that a stock's uh, relatively undervalued, you put your position down, and then after three months, it's still isn't moving in the direction either way. Uh, 
you know, to make it material, are you just happy to cut and, and move on or do you keep reevaluating? And is there potential to hold some positions over a 12 to 18 month period? Yeah, it's, it's probably a really good point. I mean, a lot of our investors, especially the older, the older bracket, you do tend to say to them, how long have you held Commonwealth Bank? How long have you held your BHP shares? And the, the top answer is always, I don't know. I, they never really know uh, how long they've held them for. Um, I guess for us, a company that's getting out near 60 to 90 days, we, we go into every position with a target exit price. It is floating, so it floats with the benchmark. So if there's a big fall off in markets, our target exit price will, will naturally come down with it. And the same when markets are booming. So it's all relative. Um, but after 90 days, we'll, we'll generally start to feel that we haven't got this right. Um, we'll, let's get out of this company. Let's bring that cash back on board and look to redeploy that into some new opportunities that we see. Um, almost all of the outperformance that we achieve occurs within the first 20 days of purchasing a company. Uh, about the next 20% or so of that outperformance happens between day 20 and day 45. And outside day 45, we're shooting around with everybody else. Um, we, don't, we don't have an edge. So we really need to look to get that capital freed up and find some new things. Sort of come back to the fact there's no right or wrong way to invest, but there, there is a right or wrong way to invest for different types of personalities. What sort of personality do you think is suited to this sort of trading framework? It's funny. It's funny how it's evolved. I mean, it's it's something that I think would, especially some of our investors, philosophically, they either are buy and hold investors, uh, or they're interested in something different. So the conversation evolves either quite quickly with a very hard no, uh, or, or or the larger bucket, I would say, of people who go, "Hang on a minute, this is quite different and very diversified to what." I've seen before or what I currently hold um, and it's starting to get a bit of weight with those institutional group of investors that say, I've got four small cap managers. They all do practically the same thing. Um, if we get a fifth and it's uncorrelated, that, that's going to be great for that section of our, our asset allocation. Um, and I think it's something that's resonated, especially you know, the last six or seven years, the rise of the products, the amount of these movements, people are willing to give this short-term horizon a bit more of a go um, than they might have been in the 1980s or the 1990s because things are moving and evolving so quickly. And so we'll get to a few of the stocks that, that you feel are relatively undervalued at the minute at the end of the chat. But maybe if we start off uh, with more of a, a macroeconomic outlook and how you're feeling about the world and, and maybe start with interest rates around the world and, and what you're seeing happening there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty unique at the moment. We've all been locked up for 12 to 18 months, our overseas uh, friends are still locked up in the UK and parts of the US. It's it's returning. The vaccine is very promising. It's it's looking like growth's gonna gonna start to evolve. Um, I guess interest rates are the are the big risk, and inflation risk is the big risk that, that everybody's talking about the last couple of weeks. Um, and certainly is going to be a problem for the next six to nine months at least. Um, you know, you've got Brazil and, and Turkey that raised rates last week. Uh, Norway sort of come out and said, look, we'd be looking to raise closer to the end of 2021. And uh, probably what we've seen in, in the tech crunch of recent, you know, what does that mean for the US? What does that mean for developed country yields? Does the US need to bring forward that, the rise in rate? But they sort of initially came out with guidance and said, don't worry about anything until post 2024. It's now looking that that's come in a little bit to 2023. What does that mean for cash flows of, of companies that aren't going to make their cash flows in the next three or four years? Um, how do you value those and, and how hard are they going to be crunched versus, I guess, some of your more defensive style investments? Can you see a world where the, the US implements yield curve control? If, if the 10-year gets to 2%, can you see a world where they say, 
no, no more. We're printing and, and buying as many bonds here as we need to to stop this rate going any higher. Yeah, it's definitely a chance. I think the the key element of that yield curve control problem is going to be whether inflation is there as well. What they're trying to avoid is, I guess, that that stagflation environment where you've got stagnant GDP growth, you've got no growth coming through, and then you've also got the inflation risk. That's super dangerous to equities and probably some other investment classes as well. So um, they, they may look to implement it, but at, at the moment, I think it's probably more likely they might let it run a bit, a bit rampant for a little while um, before they seek to, to kind of reel it in, especially after the last 18 months of what we've seen. It's whether or not, yeah, I mean, for a, a normal equity investor, that you curve being capped, if you like, and, and inflation running hot, looks horrible, particularly if you're a bond investor. But yeah. in a way, to get away the amount of debt that, that is in the system, it's hard to see that there's any other option besides seriously negative real interest rates for an extended period of time. Which is, which is just bonkers. I mean, as we, we talked about before, I mean, negative real interest rates was something that wasn't even considered. It wasn't even a, a possibility once upon a time. And all the economic literature uh, written assumed that that could never happen. And now we're seeing it, you know, Pretty pretty frequently, I guess the. I'm, you, talking, I'm talking really interesting by that. I'm I'm talking more about just inflation being higher than the, the actual. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, that too. I mean, and and the risk there being if if you do let some of these bond rates run, what does that mean for some of those zombie companies that you know are struggling to? They're not paying down the principal of their debt. They're only just managing to survive to pay the interest. Um, if that and interest. Like the debt's going up, in which case they're it's becoming even more fragile, and they can tolerate. And even smaller rise in yields. Yeah. It just becomes this sort of perpetual. And it becomes a political problem as well, because if those companies go bankrupt, those employees need to go somewhere or, or onto welfare. So that's another concern, um, I guess, for the Fed. They'll, they'll, as you probably touched on, try to manage it as best as possible. But the, the key risk being that it will take two or three or four quarters to see some of those effects flow through. Um, all the while, we've got this coronavirus vaccine could work quite soon, might not work at all, might work over the next couple months. It's very difficult to forecast and very, very unique. And how are you viewing the current cycle? Like, it feels like the way the markets are behaving, it feels very late cycle, but then we had an almighty equity crash in, um, what was it, March last year. You know, there, there are some people arguing that we're at the beginning of a new cycle. Um, how are you sort of framing the, the current business cycle and investing cycle that we find ourselves in? It was quite unique. I mean, the, the absolute low was the 23rd of March last year. Um, a lot of our peer group sort of flew to cash. We were quite fortunate, I guess, by the, by the way we've set up the fund and the way we've got the structure that, you know, we're low cash, we're always invested in equities and we picked up a lot of good companies at some very cheap prices. What happened in April and that plus 14% in the benchmark, we did plus 21, was just unbelievable. That's, Plus 14% is what some investors would like to get on maybe two, sometimes now three years as yields have come down. Uh, and to have that in four weeks was bonkers. We're 12 months into it, uh, as you touched on, probably very early in the cycle at the moment. But again, with, with the yield rate control and all the interest rate control, it feels more akin to some of the boom and bust cycles we had in the 1920s, the 1940s and 1950s, where there were these real short three-year expansions uh, and then very short, quick, crashes and corrections that you know, drowned out some of those companies uh, and then you started off again on another three-year cycle. The concern is, I guess, the wider markets got used to this last 40 years of these seven, eight, nine, 10, 12-year cycles 
of economic expansion and then these huge crashes like the dot-com crash, obviously the GFC and coronavirus, very unique in their own three different ways, but, but similar in the sense that they did follow that, that large expansion of seven or eight years. So um, at the moment, it feels like things can continue. Yields are low, but they're low in every asset class. Bonds are low, real estate rents are basically the same. I mean, even looking at real estate, you used to buy a house or an investment property, say that outer ring of the Melbourne CBD, $500,000 and you get $400 a week, 20 grand a year in rent. We fast forward six, seven, eight years, that same house is now worth a million dollars, but but the rent it's receiving is still $400 a week. So that hasn't changed, which is quite unique. Um, and as you touched on earlier, if rates start to increase, you know, the rental income is still going to be about 2% for that property. But where is the capital growth going to come from? Where are you going to get the increase in investment uh, value from that, that property? So, you know, property starts to look a bit iffy at this height. Um, equities look equally as high. Debt and fixed interest are just completely backwards at the moment. So it's a real big question, especially if you're, you know, a big time institutional super fund, where does the capital flow to? Uh, and then probably even more concerning for, for the people playing along at home, where, where do you park your next next cash that isn't just uh, you know, invest and pray like an afterpay or, or similar? Where can you actually get some, some solid investing? And it also feels like we've moved from an era of monetary dominance, you know, starting from the US and, and really moving to an era of fiscal dominance, which a lot of investors haven't seen for a long period of time. I think the US, you know, Biden's announced he's hopefully getting a, a, a new $3 trillion predominantly infrastructure bill up and, and through the Senate. Does this feel like a, a pretty significant step change, particularly from maybe how the US dealt with the, the GFC? Yeah, it, it's, it's certainly weird. I mean, in the sense that the $3 trillion infrastructure project once upon a time used to be funded from tax revenue. People would go to work, pay taxes, and then would be a net budget and try and pay that out. The US debt ceiling just seems to, um, it has this cap that will never go higher that we've heard five or six or seven times from 19 trillion and 21 trillion. And I'm not exactly sure what it's at today, but it keeps finding more printed money. And I guess that concern there is what does that mean for the USD AUD rate? What does that mean for the USD, all the other pairs that, that are out there? Um, the US dollar has been suffering pretty heavily in recent times. They've been printing more money practically than anyone else. And, and it does need to come from somewhere. And I guess the, the converse of that, it, it does need to get paid back eventually. You can't just keep printing imaginary money forever. Uh, it does get people back to work. But, but to our earlier point about growth and inflation, if it's not causing that real economic growth, it's just pushing on a string. It's not doing anything effective. So um, certainly a concern. And talk to me about, uh, you, you mentioned a, a few of the stocks off air that you felt provided relatively good value at the minute. Maybe walk through uh, three of them uh, one at a time and, and just a brief overview of, of what it is about those stocks and perhaps the fear that investors are displaying with them. But uh, that, that's why you like them. Yeah, sure. I mean, the Two stocks today, one's at probably one end of the interest rate risk curve and one's at the other. Uh, and the third one we'll talk about is a bit of a bit of an outside horse, just a bit more of a research project. So the first one we'd like to talk about is IFM, uh, Infomedia Limited. So they've had uh, a recent earnings report that was below guidance. Uh, the market expected slightly more. They were trading, I think at the time, uh, $1.80 just before the announcement. It fell all the way down to $1.33. We were quite interested in that. We felt that was a bit of an overreaction. We purchased that company at $1.39. Uh, it was currently trading at $1.50 yesterday. 
pretty solid you know, management and book and team, although that's not generally something we'd look to assess. Um, they have announced several times that they've had these pipeline blockages, uh, you know, certain customers they haven't been able to reach or travel to. Uh, so looking to unlock that value now that Oz is opening back up and overseas, they're, they're an international company. Um, so moving into that, we have a, a target price on that company of $1.55. So about two to 3% gain on that uh, target over the next sort of two to three months uh, is the first. So that's quite interesting. Again, uh, they're a tech company, so they're going to have a little bit, they're, they're going to enjoy, I guess, some of that um, low monetary environment that they're, they're facing. The second for us is Rural Funds Group. So they're a, they're a massive real estate investment trust in Australia, about a billion dollars under assets. Um, and they've got about $300 million in debt. Pretty solid team. Um, they paid a, about a two and a half cent dividend every quarter for, for recent memory. Um, specialising in cattle farming and almond farming. They've recently looked to branch out into some macadamia, macadamia farming and, and sort of other product lines and diversify away. Um, pretty confident that, that that company there is, is, is doing quite well and will stay solid for the near term. So we placed a $2.48 price target on that. Again, conscious that it's got that 4% dividend as well. So it's quite attractive. Uh, and then I guess the third company for us is one that we've been watching quite closely, Jupiter Mine. So they're an iron ore company. Had a huge divvy at, at certain stages yeah. in listed life. Yeah, so they, the, the management's quite solid that the only reason they ever listed this company was to split the dividends around. So the stock price has remained quite flat uh, relatively over its journey, but you're right, had a, had a quite a high dividend for quite a long period of time. Um, they're now looking to demerge inside the business and so they're going to keep Jupiter and they've got another company called Juno that they're looking to spin out. Uh, they went through for approval. They were scheduled for mid-March to have that demerger occur. Uh, one of the major investors holds about 15% was subject to the Foreign Investment Review Board uh, protocols and, and, and restrictions. They said, look, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to go through that. Uh, the lawyers came back in and realised they, they could make this merger go through uh, some of the terms. So that was at a high of about 38 cents about a week and a half ago. It's fallen all the way down to 30 cents the iron ore price has remained pretty stable. So I guess that one there is much of an, a fear-driven event. Uh, they're looking at, will this demerger even actually occur? There's a vote going ahead in April, late April, that will confirm whether that will or won't. So we're keeping an eye on that at the moment, uh, just having a look at, at what that might mean for, for them going forward. That's awesome. A couple of stocks there for people to put on their watch list. Where can, uh, where can people follow you or, or find out more about what you guys are doing at Spadium? Yeah, so we've got the we've got the new uh, website. Uh, obviously, it's, it's sign up to the newsletter, but probably the best place for us is for LinkedIn. Um, we publish our monthly newsletter there, as well as every two weeks we do a, a stock watch publication, looking at similar to today five companies that we're looking at, what they're currently trading at, and what our target price is for them. Generally, try to keep them to five different sectors, uh, and, and obviously all small cap related. So yeah, follow us on LinkedIn, and you'll see uh, a bit more of those stock tips coming out. Awesome, Nick. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.